Welcome to Love in the Air, the podcast that serves up all things tennis. Whether you're a fan of the sport, a seasoned player, or a beginner just starting out, this podcast is just for you. Join us as we explore the ins and outs of the game, from techniques and strategy to the latest news and trends. With expert guests, exciting interviews, and lively discussions, we'll keep you on the edge of your seat and help you take the tennis game to the next level. So grab your racket, tune in, and get ready for some ace content. This is Love in the Air, a tennis podcast. Welcome to episode seven. I'm going to share with you what coaching has taught me over the years. So when I was coaching for high school, the players' parents who were on the quote-unquote boys and girls team, it was very interesting and it is fair to say some things have changed quite a bit since the late early 2000s. Now, it is true as the old proverb declares The more things change, the more things they stay the same. In this podcast, I'm going to cover significant changes to actually high school tennis over the last quarter century, and then I will give you what has been and what hasn't been addressed. Now, in a nutshell, here are the three important things that changed and that I've witnessed while coaching high school over the last few years. The first thing There's no pain, no gain. That was a model that a lot of match play fitness training was actually geared toward. And it gradually has been replaced by a new paradigm, train without strain, which really emphasizes building adequate recovery techniques into conditioning. Practicing competitive routines for high school players help prevent overtraining and repetitive reuse Injuries and burnouts are very common, so therefore, you must understand this new paradigm. Now, number two, in recent years, nationwide, eroding is the sportsmanship in high school, in my opinion. And athletics has been infected, and tennis also. Fortunately, sustained teaching in sportsmanship by many coaches that I've seen, that I've witnessed, They're trying to restore respect to our game. And that's one of the duties as a tennis coach that you should strive for. Now, in recent years, nationwide, the sportsmanship in high school athletics has been infected. Tennis, too. Fortunately, sustained teaching by other teachers and the sportsmanship by many other coaches, it's restoring the respect to the game. Now, the notion that... Our opponents, our enemies, is given away to the traditional view of the opponents as temporary adversaries who challenge us to display and develop our skills. Do unto others before they do unto you is being rejected now in favor of a new and return paradigm shift, which is the golden rule. Number three, after decades of dominance by winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, philosophy, high school tennis coaches are quickly adopting and emphasizing a continuous improvement that is challenging exclusive focus on match outcomes as the basis of the player assessment. That is going to be more important than anything else. Now, coaches are discovering that when improvement rather than outcome is foremost in athletes' mind, High school tennis coaches and tennis players are free to take on and grow from 
the challenges that they might otherwise avoid. Wins are easier to come by when players primarily focus on specific quality of play goals. In other words, when players commit themselves to improvement, outcome of goals tend to take care of themselves. Now, change, no pain, no gain, is given away to train without strain. So one change has been long overdue. Now, for years, teenage tennis players have been suffering repetitive overuse injuries and burning out from overtraining with a no pain, no gain approach from tennis. Now, I'm going to refer you to a study. Back in 2010, the USDA Sports Science Committee published an ebook titled Tennis Recovery, a comprehensive review of research. It reported that overuse injuries account for an estimated 50% of all injuries in young athletes. The Sports Science Committee authors also identified the culprit, which it was inadequate recovery time. Now, let's consider actual high school play match. If we videotape an hour-long match, only 15 minutes are actually spent playing tennis, running and hitting shots back and forth. 45 minutes out of the entire hour spent as time in between points, times between games, times on changeovers, and set breaks. The overall rest-to-play ratio, then, it's 3-1 to one for actual matches. If we analyze tennis points, the rest-to-play ratio, again, favors to rest. High school tennis points, which typically last less than 10 seconds, are followed by 20-second rest breaks. Effective high school tennis training, if we work backwards from the requirements of an actual point in match play, will consciously incorporate the rest. It will balance intense energy investment. Resistant training, sprinting, and high-octane hitting, for example, would be the regular recovery opportunities. Now, some essentials for effective training, in my opinion, are going to be in this way. One, frequent hydration breaks are essential. If you think about that, research shows dehydration not only weakens players, it also hinders recovery. So when coaches send players on or into the court, we should make it an automatic that they have with their water bottles, hydration, whatever they need, then provide plenty of occasions for the kids to use them. Number two, tennis players naturally need to practice short anaerobic bursts. Now, coaches can build the rest into a full-speed ball pickup called the spider. Rely the contest and relay a contest by allowing the players to walk around behind the baseline doing recovery, breathing, let's say 30 to 45 seconds while their teammates are each completing their own intense 15 to 20 second spider circuits. That way, players will be fresh for the next run rather than oxygen dead ridden. Number three, tennis also demands aerobic conditioning, right? So points may be short, but we also must be fit enough to play them along. So what's a good way to develop aerobic tennis? Unfortunately, long, slow endurance running, a traditional staple of high school tennis team training, is very limited and very limited to value that you're going to provide to your tennis player if you do so. So shorter, like six to eight minute whole team search runs that alternate sprints eight seconds with jogging 24 seconds, better 
prepare players for what happens during and in between points on the court. You are trying to mimic tennis points and tennis rest while you're doing this aerobic training and conditioning. Like another way to approximate on-court energy outlies in the patterns while supporting the aerobic fitness. It is called the centipede runs. The centipede runs, let me be clear. So a group of 8 to 12 players jog in line around the court, the parking lot, the gymnasium, wherever they are, with the last runner in line continuously sprinting to the head, which is the centipede. As soon as the runner in the front is reached, the lead position, then he switches. And that is one amazing exercise. Now, number four, for more than a few years, I've trained a lot of my players to breathe through the nose to support recovery. And that's for the recovery in between points and the changeovers, right? Now, nose breathing, and let me see if I don't butcher this, which is diaphragmatic breathing, which is the medical terms draw air into the lower sections of the lungs. Since this is a cardiopulmonary blood supply, the process is gravity driven. Much more blood is present for oxygen exchange in the lower lobes of the lung. In short, more blood plus more oxygen, fresher players, right? So I can't claim to comprehend the scientific cost, but the added benefit of nose breathing is calmness. Nose breathing players in the teams that used to taught are known throughout a lot of the places that I've taught. So being even keel, as much as less volatile than most adolescent athletes, is going to help you keep maintain that. So make sure that you are in the right mindset. Now, I looked at Billie Jean King, Navratilova, Gigi Fernandez, who also have endorsed the calming effects of nose breathing. There's an actual book by body, mind, and sports details. And I think you want to look it up. It's uh, 1994, John Dullard. And he spelled the last name D-O-U-I-L-L-A-R-D-S. And that is one of the best books that will help you if you're trying to learn how to breathe or if you're trying to teach people how to breathe. And number five, and another simple way to inject the rest in the process of competitive play is to transfer the racket into the non-dominant hand follow every point. Now, this is something that you really will need to understand because I've seen many matches where the easy recovery procedure could have been made a difference in the outcome. So by you learning to deactivate going into the right hand, if you're a left hand, or if you're going into the left hand from the right hand, will relax you more. So in a summary, the lack of adequate recovery time and techniques has rendered the no pain, no gain model of tennis training counterproductive, leaving an entire generation of young athletes vulnerable to overtraining, repetitive overuse, injuries, and burnout. What is the antidote? Train without strain. Invest in rest to support your tennis success. Now, let's talk about change. Good sportsmanship must be consciously taught today and learn. If you teacher, teach it. 
your student, learn it. We live in an era which is in your face taunting by athletes, coaches, 24-7 trash talk on sports radio, television. It's not a surprise that confrontational tone of our time has spread to adolescent tennis wannabes. Now, there was an article back in September, let me see, September 2011, which it was called Dealing with the True Tennis Handicap System. Now, USPTA Master Professionals have addressed this, and they list the host of toxic, te- toxic tennis practices that confound honest players. Bad calls. Long delay between points and games. Loud disruptive, self-talk, quick serving, questioning honest opponents, calls, the changing of the score. As a long-time coach and as an intercollegiate athlete, the umpires of the past 15 years have not done a good job. I witnessed all of it. What do we do about this? One response is to adopt a very pragmatic approach And this was used by Jack Kramer, who said he trained himself to absorb up to six bad calls per match. If there were fewer, fine. If there were more than six, then the player better be careful the next time he came to the net. That was kind of a good way to look at it. Now, there was also, what's his name? Steve Wilkinson. This was back in 2011, and he was actually... Uh, USPTA presidential award winner who taught and coached a number of players who had like Division Three national championships employed a subtler method. And for decades, Steve trained his players not to challenge opponent calls. Some say, hey, Coach Wilson, why not? So Coach Wilson players won despite the approach. And I would suggest his teams won because of it. Building on Steve's approach for the last few years, I've taught my own players to accept opponents' calls without a dispute instead of arguing to reduce the opportunity for questionable calls by visualizing a skinner shorter court and consistently hitting the spots within the lines rather than painting the lines, particularly in pivotal points when an opponent is the temptation to adopt dubious tactics is the highest form of cheating so i definitely recommend for you to understand this change it's really going to be amazing for you if you understand it because let's face it unforced errors what they do to us it's something else right so unforced errors invariably outnumber bad calls in high school tennis matches focusing on what they can control the unforced errors instead of fixating on what they cannot control, unethical tactics by opponents. It provides players a positive avenue for rerouting the energy that could cause otherwise to get further away with frustration on the court. So when it comes to change, I want you to think about this statement. Improvement challenges outcome as measure of player success. Even though every tennis player loses, Think about Rod Labor lost 16 matches back in 1969, the year he completed his second Grand Slam. High school coaches have long emphasized wins and losses as the primary measure of their player success or failure. 
if you have such an approach, that approach is bound to discourage many players since 50% of all tennis matches are lost in high school, statistically speaking. You might have a player or two who have better win percentage, but as an average, that is the average for tennis players. Fortunately, if you emphasize in continuous improvement, you're going to gain ground, and that is going to be the basis for a place and player assessment, in my opinion. So coaches in a lot of the high schools that I've seen now work with a lot of the players during the preseason to target goals, such as like reducing double falls, developing reliable backhands, improving communication with the doubles partner, eliminating destructive self-talk. Now, also coaches should be charting players so they can see the progress and they can measure the progress throughout the entire season. When you look at varsity and JV players alike, they practice and complete and compete with more purpose and with far less pecking order anxiety. With their goals, they're going to be grounded and committed to continuous improvement. And that is the goal. I challenge the players in the high school teams, in the teams that I taught in college, to ask themselves the same question all season long. How much can I improve today? Now, with improvements, rather than outcome, in their mind, the players are going to become free to take on and grow from the challenges they might otherwise avoid. Okay, so early last season, we played a team from a school that was 30 times larger than our own, whose top six players play only one sport, tennis. And they played it all year round. We got shell-shacked. We got blanket, in fact. And still, no one was down. Every guy, each double teams, came away with something they can build on something specific to improve the next time we play. So what I want you to think about for a second, this is actually the two questions that I ask to make sure that I can put the right mindset on every player. Every time we see something is, I always encourage. And my first question is, what did you do good today? And the second question is, what can you improve? When you look at those two questions, that sets the right mindset for any player. And one of the things that happened after this is our team started taking off to the point that we started running the table in the regular season. We won. We got a couple of district wins. We advanced to uh, the finals. And we almost went to a state championship. So it is not about anything other than understanding that what we are to do for the team. And before falling again and after the final match, our guys were elated. We had come so far, exceeding the expectations. They graduated, half of the team was gone, new team was being built. But hearing from them exactly 
everything that they do, how they were fearless during the season, how they were committed to themselves, how they were improving, how they were trusting, how they were looking at the outcome of the goals, and how they understood they would take care of themselves was an amazing journey. And it is one of the best things I've ever done in my life. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure that you continue to improve tennis, and I'll see you on the next one.